0: This mid-year, 2023 False Claims Act update has some surprising issues and some not surprising issues. There's a focus on ophthalmology, Quetan bars, as well as medical necessity. And so listen to this episode and I will tell you what has happened in the first six months of 2023 in the healthcare industry under the False Claims Act.
1: Captain Integrity Production, and the law firm of Nelson Mullins presents Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. Stark Integrity explores the world of the Stark Law and healthcare compliance with our nationally recognized Stark Law, Fraud, and Compliance Attorney, Bob Wade. Bob has a national healthcare legal and compliance practice that focuses on the minions of the Anti-Kickback Statute, False Claims Act, and the Stark Law, including fair market value and commercial reasonableness. Although Bob is a law partner in the national law firm of Nelson Mullins, the views expressed in Stark Integrity are Bob's personal views and not the views of the firm, and they are not intended to be legal advice. Now, without further ado... I give you Captain Integrity,
0: Bob Wade. Welcome to Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance podcast. My name is Bob Wade and I am your host. Well, this is the 2023 mid-year False Claims Act update. And as I indicated in my teaser, there's some general issues that are not surprising and some issues that are somewhat surprising. Basically, uh, what is surprising is the low amount of recoveries that have occurred in the first six months. So the first six months of 2023, the total amount that has been recovered by the government is $485 million. Now compare that with 2022 for the first six months, it was $500 million. So it's approximately the same, $485 million versus $500 million. But as we know, in 2022, for the entire year, the government recovered $2.2 billion dollars. So that would mean that there would have to be a lot more settlements uh, between July 1 through December 31 in order to get up to the $2.2 billion in order to be equivalent to 2022. Now, what's interesting of that $485 million, there were 36 False Claims Act resolutions. So it's 36 for $485 million for the mid-year 2023. Compare that with 2022. Here's what's a little bit surprising. Is that there were twenty nine resolutions in twenty twenty two, so twenty nine in twenty twenty two compared with thirty six in twenty twenty three, coming out with about you know equivalent uh, amount of settlements, you know four hundred eighty five million versus five hundred million. And the purpose of doing this False Claims Act update is to kind of let you know what some of the issues are. Uh, that were settled uh, and we can learn from experience from other providers and hopefully those other providers are not you or entity that you represent but if they are they're still learning um, objectives that uh, we can actually take as we implement uh, not only our legal compliance but also our compliance programs generally. I do want to cover a couple of uh, kind of overarching cases that were dealt with in the first six months of 2023. You know, first off is the Supreme Court in the super value case, and I have a complete episode on the super value case, but uh, there was some issue as to whether or not there's an objective standard versus a subjective standard uh, dealing with the knowledge under the False Claims Act. And there was a split. And so the Supreme Court, as we know if you've listened to the episode on Stark Integrity, is that it is a subjective standard. So what did the defendant actually know and actually believed at the time of the alleged false claim? So it's it's the subjective factor, not just generally, that objectively someone could believe that the claim being submitted is, uh, is defensible. It's, it's what did the defendant actually know? There's subjective factors. And again, as I've pointed out on Stark Integrity previously, most of the time it's uh, through emails uh, that uh, the, the evidence of the subjective factor is known. And in the legal parlance, we call this the scienter. So that was one of the issues. Uh, the second issue, and this is another Supreme Court case, and this is the case of uh, United States Xrel Polanski versus Executive Health Resources, Inc. So this is, has to deal as to when the government can actually dismiss a false claim suit over the tam relator's objection. And this is a quote from the case. It says the government may dismiss the action, uh, the false claims action or the tam action, notwithstanding the objections of the person initiating the action, if the person has been notified by the government of the filing of the motion, that's the motion to dismiss, and the court has provided the person with an opportunity for a hearing on the motion. So it's, it's whether or not the government has intervened, and if they have intervened, they can dismiss. And this case is saying that even if the government files a motion to dismiss, that is a, an involvement of the government in the case, in which case, if the there's a hearing on that motion, that, and the QUTAM relator has the ability to, um, an opportunity to be heard on that motion, then the QUTAM case can be dismissed. So those are the two Supreme Court cases. Now, what I want to do is go through some of the False Claims Act settlements uh, and judgments that have occurred in the first six months of 2023, and I'll know, and this is consistent with uh, other reports that I have had on the False Claims Act settlement, most of the settlements under the False Claims Act are in the healthcare industry, so healthcare and life sciences. And so I'm only going to focus on the settlements in the healthcare and life sciences industries because SARC Integrity is about healthcare and life sciences. So I'm going to go through these cases, talk a little bit about some of the facts. I'm not going to do a deep dive in any individual one, uh, but kind of give you some of the, uh, the issues that were uh, in play with respect to those settlements. And before I go settlement by settlement, what's interesting is that there are physician groups who have settled individual physicians who have settled, and individual executives who have settled, in addition to healthcare entities like hospitals and health systems and laboratories. So we're continuing the theme of individual accountability under the False Claims Act. And again, a a lot of times when I'm dealing with clients, uh, a lot of times the clients will say, well, give me some examples where physicians have been involved in these these suits and also settlements, and I will give you some of those examples in this mid year update. So, here we go. So, first on January 9th, a physician group agreed to pay $1.85 million. And what the allegation was by the tam relator is that they were billing for number one, medically unnecessary cataract surgeries and diagnostic tests, number two, tests that were incomplete or of no value and office visits in which, number three, the level of service claim was not provided. Now, as I said in, in the teaser, ophthalmology is kind of a big issue in this year's mid-year report, and this is one example. Again, this is a tam case uh, dealing with ophthalmology. The next tam case is on January the 12th, where an orthopedic company and its owner, so an individual, agree to pay $1.8 million, where they actually... They, they filed a claim using a higher reimbursed knee agent when it was actually using a less expensive knee agent. So this is a case that if you're going to bill for, uh, anything, a procedure implement or any type of uh, in this case, an orthopedic knee agent, you want to make sure that you're accurately billing the type of knee agent and you're not substituting a less expensive for the more expensive knee agent build. The next Tam case is February the 7th, and this is a clinical laboratory. They agreed to pay $19 million, and basically they provided phlebotomy services to physicians when this laboratory knew that a third-party provider actually paid physicians to induce their referrals to this laboratory company so even though this laboratory company may not have been the direct company that was providing these inducements this third-party provider on behalf of the laboratory was actually providing the the inducements Uh, so they were found guilty because they had knowledge of the financial inducements that were being provided to the referring physicians the next case is a long-term care hospital. So this is February the 22nd, again, a tam case. So this long-term care hospital uh, agreed to pay $21.6 million. And basically, the, the, the allegations were that the company submitted claims to the government for, number one, unauthorized services. Number two, services not provided, and this is where, from a compliance perspective, we need to be very careful to, that we're documenting everything that we're actually billing for. And number three, services that were considered to be worthless. Now, whenever I ever say worthless, uh, this is what the QUITAM later allege, we have to be thinking about medical necessity. So there's a medical necessity issue with some of the claims uh, that this long-term care hospital uh, actually billed for. So. Uh, in your compliance programs, we need to make sure that we're looking out for the documentation as well as the medical necessity of the claims being billed. Well, the next settlement, and this one is an interesting one. Uh, so this is a, a Pennsylvania physician, a university medical center, and also a healthcare practice. Uh, combined, uh, they all agreed to pay back $8.5 million. And this was a settlement on February the 27th. And this is a case of you have a highly productive physician. And in most of the cases I deal with, I deal with, especially from a fair market value defensibility perspective, I deal with physicians who are highly productive. And you could be a highly productive physician, but you need to make sure that you are providing the services and you're documenting and billing for the services uh, consistent with the payers, whether it's Medicare, Medicaid, or a third-party payer, with the payer's required rules. And in this case, the government alleged that this physician performed multiple complex surgical procedures at the same time, and he failed to participate in key or critical aspects of these surgeries. And in, in, when the physician is popping back and forth between various uh, operating rooms. Uh, the allegation was that because of his conduct, these patients were forced to endure hours of medically unnecessary anesthesia time. As we know, that a lot of the risk in a surgical procedure is with anesthesia. So because of how this physician performed these procedures... Patients had to undergo anesthesia longer than what they normally would have if the physician was focusing on the single procedure or participating in the key and critical portions of the surgeries. Uh, So when you have a highly productive physician, you need to make sure that you're analyzing how the physician is operating to make sure that they are part of the key and critical portions and we're not forcing patients to endure unreasonable anesthesia time. Now, on February the 27th, uh, this one is involved a New York nursing facility. And so the facility, its landlord, and also several individuals affiliated with the facility agreed to pay back almost $7.2 million. And the allegation here by the government was that some of the services that they build were, air quotes, worthless uh, because of the facility's failure to maintain a license and to ensure— and. and, and get this ensure proper staffing and maintenance so you get into the situation where you're understaffed you may not have kept your license up to date then uh, the the allegation can be that those claims billed were not supported and therefore create a false claim so this is 7.2 million dollars The next case is somewhat unique. Uh, It's a QETAM case uh, settled on March the 1st for $7 million. This is a medical equipment company. And basically, they failed to disclose all discounts received from or actual costs that it paid to manufacturers. Now, under the Discount Safe Harbor under the anti Kickback Statute, any discounts have to be disclosed. And so this was a failure to disclose those discounts. Uh, so this uh, tam Relator brought this case for the failure to disclose the discounts. The medical equipment company paid $7 million, and this Quetam Relator received $1.05 million as the Relator's uh, reward. So on March the 23rd, we're back to ophthalmology. So this is a Texas-based provider uh, that agreed to pay approximately $2.9 million dollars. And it was in exchange that they, that these providers paid kickbacks, uh, for the referrals of Medicare and Medicaid patients for cataract surgeries. And these kickbacks also included payments, you know, actual cash payments, as well as free continuing medical education courses. And I in Stark Integrity, I have episodes talking about continuing medical education and the compliance and legal risks for that. So this was one where the, the, it was provided for free, as well as travel and entertainment to these referring physicians. And again, this was brought by a tam relator. Now, this next case also implicates the Stark Law, as well as the False Claims Act. So this is Covenant Healthcare and this is a regional hospital system and two physicians actually agreed to pay back more than 69 million dollars in a settlement for March the 29th in in this re- resolution there was inappropriate financial relationships with eight referring physicians and also a physician owned investment group so some of the allegations here is that there were medical directorships that were above fair market value that the physicians owed rent payment that was forgiven, so they did not pay fair market value for the space being used, as well as below market lease arrangements for equipment in order to induce the referrals. From a physician perspective, again, this is a $69 million settlement. One doctor agreed to pay back $406 million. The other physician uh, agreed to pay back $345,000. So $406,000 and then $345,000. And in this case, the tam relator received $12.3 million uh, of the recovery. The next tam case is uh, settled on April the 19th, and this is a healthcare company out of Virginia. They agreed to pay back $3 million, and basically they were billing the Virginia Medicaid for in-home healthcare services for pediatric patients, get this, who were actually hospital, hospitalized at the time. So they built for in home services on days where the pediatric patients were actually uh, hospitalized, as well as building for home health services that were not provided. So that gets back to the documentation, medical necessity. Uh, so uh, that was uh, brought by a QUITAM relator. Then we go to April the 20th. Again, another ophthalmology case where this ophthalmologist uh, individual agreed to pay $1.17 million that it offered kickbacks to optometrists for referrals of Medicare beneficiaries for cataract surgeries. So these were actual financial kickbacks to these optometrists for cataract surgeries. And the tam relator in this case was collected $257,000. The next case is also a tam case settled on May the 9th for $1.7 million. This is a Kentucky urine drug testing company. And they basically were billing Medicare and Medicaid for court-ordered drug tests, uh, which were not medically necessary. They were ordered by the court, but they were not medically necessary for billing purposes. And the tam relator in this case received $295,000. And then the next case is actually a really good case for us to all understand. And this is a a Mass General Brigham uh, who owned Massachusetts Eye and Ear Infirmary. So on May the 24th, uh, this hospital group agreed to pay $5.7 million, that it had uh, seven physician compensation plans that did not conform with the Stark Law and then filed 44 doctors. Now, the what, what, reason why this one is interesting is that these plans were in existence before Mass General acquired Massachusetts Eye and Ear Infirmary, which means that when you are doing an acquisition, you need to review all of the physician financial arrangements t- for Stark Law and a Kickback Statute compliance uh, to make sure that you're not stepping into a situation where you're, you are going to be basically holding the bag and being responsible. So in this case, it was a $5.7 million uh, issue for Mass General. Uh, the next quitam case, uh, and this is again, a medical necessity documentation issue. So this is May the 25th, a Philadelphia-based primary care physician practice and two of its individual physicians agreed to pay back 1.5 million, where they billed diagnosis codes for morbid obesity and smoking sensation, when the diagnosis codes were not supported by the medical record documentation. The next case is deals with a vascular surgeon on May the 25th, agreed to pay $43.42 million. Uh, this doctor also ended up spending 80 months in prison, uh, and this was a Quetam case, and where he actually do- billed for uh, services or procedures that were never performed, and, inappropriately use modifier 59. Modifier 59 is basically to unbundle the code. Now, you know, typically, if a vascular surgeon is doing two surgical procedures, you can bill for the first procedure at 100%, the second procedure at 50%. If you attach modifier number 59, it unbundles those, and you get 100% reimbursement for each surgical procedure. So modifier 59 is supported if there are like different encounters on the same day, or you're operating on a different anatomical site, or there are different physicians that are performing surgical procedures from the same group on the same day. So that's the appropriate use, but this was inappropriate because these uh, procedures were unbundled inappropriately using modifier number 59. So we have to be very careful about the use of modifiers, especially in an unbundling situation. Uh, the next case is May the 31st, also a qui tam case. And this qui tam relator is a physician. So this is the Detroit Medical Center uh, owned by Vanguard Health. So the Detroit Medical Center agreed to pay back $29 million. And what happened here, the allegation was, is the Detroit Medical Center was providing Detroit Medical Center employed NPPs to private physicians at no charge. And these private physicians were using the services of the NPPs and so this Quetam relator, this physician, brought the uh, action. And uh, again, uh, they have episodes on stark integrity talking about this issue. So you know, if NPPs are being used, we need to make sure that we're using them appropriately and not providing them free of charge to referring physicians. Uh, the next case is the St. Francis Healthcare System out in Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, this is June the 15th, also a Quetam case. They agreed to pay back $36.5 million. And basically, uh, the allegation was there was a violation of the Stark Law and the anti-kickback statute because a bonus structure was developed for these orthopedic surgeons based upon the volume or value of referrals. You know, basically, in this case, the hospital completed an ambulatory surgery center on their campus and it was underutilized. And it caught wind uh, that these surgeons were developing their own ambulatory surgery center. So they developed a bonus program, uh, and I'll put this in quotes because this is a quote from the settlement, for generating referrals to the hospital system for physical therapy, laboratory, radiology, and other ancillary services. So those were services not personally performed. Uh, So in this case, uh, they paid back $36.5 million uh, for that that structure, that, that bonus structure that was tied to the volume or value of their referrals. Then on June the 16th, it's also a tam case. And I probably would not otherwise cover this, but this is a, um, well, except for the shock factor. Uh, this is a Maryland uh, information technology company, and they were billing the National Institute of Health for reimbursement for things that they should not have been reimbursed for, and including personal expenses unrelated to the work for the contract with NIH, in the form of, and get this, luxury vehicles, housekeeping services, mortgage payments by the, for the individual, so their individual homes, as well as some of the individual's wedding costs. So that to me, that's somewhat of a shock factor. You, you would expect that in today's era, people would not be doing that. Then I have two more. Uh, the next one is on June the 20th. Uh, this is a $1.6 million, uh, and this is uh, also a Quetam case where they, they were alleged that the evaluation and management services for testing and treatment of patients with COVID-19 system, sy- symptoms were upcoded. So this is just one of those classic examples of, of making sure that you're aud- auditing for upcoding and uh, if the, they are upcoded, then obviously those claims that are upcoded are required to be uh, repaid, especially if you're in a settlement, it's the differential between what should have been billed versus what was billed. And the last one is out of California. This is a uh, June 29th, also a tam case. So this is a, um, a county healthcare system as well as three healthcare providers, again, individuals, agree to pay back a combined $68 million And this is related to claims that were being submitted not only to the federal government, but also to the California Medicaid program under the Affordable Care Act. So they alleged that these payments were, number one, not allowed medical expenses under the Affordable Care Act. Number two, that the services for these enhanced services did not reflect fair market value for the services provided. And number three, that the services were duplicative of services already required to be rendered based upon other claims that they had billed. So this was a $68 million settlement, and the Quetam were later in this case received approximately $12.5 million as as their share of the federal recovery. So now it's time for the three Captain Terry punch points. Captain Integrity number one punch point is that the QUITAM bar is still extremely active. As, as I note in this episode, quite a few of these settlements involved settlements that were brought, uh, the cases were brought, brought by QUITAM relators. Captain integrity punch point number two, uh, there appears to be a, a great focus on the specialty of ophthalmology and cardi, uh, cataract uh, services. So if you're dealing with clients that are in that space, a lot of these settlements dealt with the specialty of ophthalmology. And lastly, Captain Integrity, punch point number three, fair market value and Stark Law issues still are high on the list. And we, I have many episodes uh, dealing with those issues on Stark Integrity. Uh, but quite a few of these settlements dealt with fair market value compensation or the structure of the compensation. Uh, that were deemed to be in violation of the Stark Law. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode, the Stark Law, or healthcare compliance, you can contact me at Wade Captain at gmail.com or my law firm email address at bob.wade at nelsonmullins.com. You can review this and any other episode of Stark Integrity at the Captain Integrity website at captainintegrity.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn under Bob Wade. I hope the three Captain Integrity punch points will help you with the Stark Law and compliance. In closing, remember that integrity depends on you and me.